20 years after the so-called war on terror began and billions of dollars later, the Taliban is back in control of Afghanistan tonight. These are people who had normal lives up until 10 days ago. Afghans are thronging to Kabul's airport. And suddenly they're in the most harrowing situation. The attack was carried out by ISIS. We will hunt you down and make you pay. The entire country is terrified. What does it take to get a more in-depth look into the week's top local news stories? The Debrief brings you inside for a one-on-one -on -one conversation with our reporters every week, right here, right now. The Debrief. Welcome to the Debrief Podcast. I'm your host, Gilma Avalos, in for David Ushry. The situation in Afghanistan has gone from dire to deadly. Back-to-back -back bombings took the lives of more than 100 Afghan civilians in Kabul and 13 U.S. service members. ISIS took responsibility for those attacks carried out by suicide bombers. One blast took place at a crowded area outside Kabul's airport where families and children were gathered, waiting to be airlifted out of the country away from the long reach of the Taliban. We recorded an interview about the thousands of Afghans desperate to escape and the fate that will await those who continue to call that area home. Our interview took place less than 24 hours before the bombings. While the conversation has shifted, the stories of people risking everything to leave are still relevant, maybe now more than ever. And joining us today is Rina Amiri, NYU Center on International Cooperation Senior Fellow and NYU Center for Global Affairs Senior Fellow. She also served as a senior advisor to the U.S. Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan under the Obama administration. Rina, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Rina, we're watching really two situations unfolding here. One, the efforts to help those Afghans who were allies to this country over the last 20 years. And of course, the threat to the Afghans who call the area at home, particularly women and girls. So let's first talk about the efforts to help evacuate vulnerable Afghans. We're fast approaching the end of this month. So what has it been like so far for the people on the ground trying to leave? It's been chaos. It, the airport right now, I was just on the phone with friends and they said, there's literally 10,000 people around the airport in the perimeters. No one can get in. And this happened because they recognized, you know, President Biden's state, uh, statement that it was very unlikely that he was going to change the, the evacuation deadline. And that's just caused panic. Everyone's shown up at the airport, those who have papers, those who don't. The concern is that all three levels may have challenges leaving U.S. citizens, mm. um, although they have the, and, and other member states, they have, of course, the best prospects of getting in. Then the allies, the interpreters, and the people who work both with the embassy as contractors, um, as staff, as well as the, uh, the people that were working with the military. And then the most vulnerable population, the women, human rights defenders, the community most at risk. It looks very unlikely that they'll get out. We only have literally two days. It's, they say August 31st, but they are going to close down operations as of Friday they have to close down the airport. They have to break down their operations so that they're giving themselves time to do that. Yeah, there's a real sense of urgency as that deadline looms. Uh, but getting on a plane, that does not mean that it's smooth sailing from there. We're seeing bottlenecks, people crowded in holding areas. So what has the experience of Afghans been as they're trying to escape and even getting on a plane? These are people who had normal lives up until 
10 days ago. They had the lives that you and I did. They went to family dinners, they watched movies on TV, and suddenly they're in the most harrowing situation, clutching their children as they get tear gassed, as they get beaten up, as there's thousands of people. They run out of food, they run out of water. I get phone calls from people sobbing because they are so traumatized. And there are the people who now are realizing with a finality that they are going to be left behind and they are terror-stricken because they are on hit lists. I've worked in war zones in different contexts. In addition to working with the US, I worked in the UN and conflict areas. This is probably one of the most traumatic situations that I have been a part of. And of course, as you say, once these people get off the plane, the ones who actually are lucky enough to make it, mm -hmm. They are leaving with nothing. They're, they're not allowed to bring a suitcase. They're allowed to just bring enough of a bag for some food and water uh, because the Taliban otherwise will stop them. So they're leaving with nothing. It's just a uh, profound loss, profound uncertainty. Yeah. Rina, well, you said that for the most part, people who are evacuating were leading the kind of lives that you and I are leading. Talk to me, if you would, about some of the gains that Afghan women and girls have made over the last two decades and the immediate changes that you're already seeing on the ground? It, it happened literally overnight. These are people who traveled inside and outside the country. They were politically active. They were social. They were dynamic. Uh, and then overnight, as the Taliban took over their provinces, their cities, suddenly they went silent. They would turn off their phones. Some buried their phones because they were so afraid because the Taliban at checkpoints are checking people's phones. So they're burying their phones. They're and those that are courageous enough to have their phones, they're deleting their apps. They're, they're in their houses with the lights off because the Taliban have been going to the houses of activists and leaders and interrogating them and their families. Most of the people that I know, women activists, human rights activists, journalists, they are in sh they're sheltering. They don't feel that home is safe. Suddenly, they are in a, in a terrifying situation overnight. I mean, I can't help thinking about the 20-year-olds who have not known another life, 20-year-olds and younger, who have been accustomed to what life has been like over the last two decades. They don't know a different life. So how has all of this impacted them in, in just a couple of weeks? 65% of the population is under 20. Uh, so for them, it's like a foreign force coming in. Uh, and um, it, it's not Afghan to them. This is not their culture. This is not their values. And they are coming in and imposing a life that is utterly terrifying and foreign to them, just stripping them of their rights overnight. And this, there is nothing familiar in what is happening to them. There is nothing that aligns with their worldview, with with how they see um, their religion, their culture. So it would be as if in the United States, some force came in and said, we know what is the real American value and imposed it and suddenly shut down all rights. It is uh, very Orwellian. Mm. Talk to me about what other groups are at risk right now. We've talked about women, young girls. What other groups are you concerned about? That has been involved in the cultural landscape, artists. I get phone calls from judges, lawyers, people who put people away in prison. Now those prisoners have been released and they are going after the prosecutors, the judges, the human rights activists who are monitoring, the people who are doing investigative reporting and media, uh, the singers, the artists, the actresses, the people who in any way in the last 20 years were seen to be a part of the government or working with 
any member of the very large international community inside Afghanistan. That is an enormous population. Think about it. For the last 20 years, anyone who's been involved and working with the government and working with the international community, that is the entire economic sector of Afghanistan largely, except for the, the farming community. So that just about every family will have somebody who is threatened in, in a really profound way. I'm getting calls from so many people saying, How, what can we do to get to, to protect our families? It's a terrifying time, I know, Rena. You mentioned that people are hiding their phones. Talk to me about the people who are courageously sharing their experiences, what's happening to them, because they're doing so at their own peril. So how are you and others here getting that information? They are saying that they're going to be killed in one way or another. They will either be killed because of their activities or they will be killed because their spirit is being quashed. Their, the essence of who they are as activists, as people, you know, this is who they are. So they say that we're dead in one way or another, and some of them are willing to take that risk. Um, so it's just they are put in a really, at a situation that one would not want on anyone. Yeah. Uh, and they're just incredibly courageous and resilient people. Uh, and it's just, this is, this should not happen to anyone, certainly not to these brave people that have weathered so much and that have stood as our allies for the last 20 years. In the last couple of days, we've seen these shows uh, on behalf of the Taliban. They've made a show of promising the rights of women, the safety of the people who helped the U.S. in the past. How does that compare to the reality, and why should the international community be skeptical here? They, they're speaking from two corners of their mouth. So on the one hand, they're speaking to the international community and saying, do not worry. We have this. We are different from what we were in the past. At the same time, there's a lot of intimidating the, the rights community. The people are terrified. Their, their phones are being checked, as I said, in checkpoints. They're, they have people going into their houses, into their offices, shaking down these individuals and their family members. So they're creating a culture of, of intimidation and fear. They're very strategic. So there are some more prominent media organizations, for example, that they're treating better. There may even be some prominent personalities that they're going to behave better with. But the population at large inside Afghanistan, there is a reason why you have displacement throughout the entire country. You have 34 provinces. And the last statistics that I saw is 32 out of 34 provinces, you have displacement because the entire country is terrified. The international community now, the U.S. and the international community, they have to deal with the Taliban, but they have to hold them accountable. And they ha cannot let the Taliban speak for Afghans as a whole. They have to be, they, they cannot just say, okay, you are the Taliban, you hold control in the country and silence and allow the silencing of the rest of the country. So there has to be sanctioning of the Taliban for not doing what they've committed to, which is protecting the rights of the population. And they should not get the sort of the legitimacy and the recognition just because of their rhetoric. Marina, days after the Taliban takeover of Kabul, we saw something that we certainly would not have seen 20 years ago, and that's a small uh, but powerful group of women protesting this. Do you think that we will continue to see that? Yeah, the, that courage is um, awe-inspiring. They stood there holding their signs saying, mm -hmm. we want rights or we want to be part of this government. You know, don't try to shut this out. Surrounded by people who had Kalashnikovs and RPGs and just a really terrifying situation of uncertainty and there's no one to protect them. 
I don't understand that type of courage. It's just beyond anything that I can comprehend. Do I expect more? I do, because the Taliban last time when they took over Afghanistan in the 1990s, the population accepted them because they were coming in a context of chaos and civil war, and they promised to restore order. Mm -hmm. and, and with the order, they brought a, this incredibly repressive regime. This time, Afghanistan has enjoyed the greatest period of freedom uh, in its history. Two decades where there were a very flawed government, corruption, a lot of weaknesses, a, a lot that was missing, but it still was and in many respects, the most progressive period in Afghan history. And so for the Taliban to come and crack down on that, I don't think that the population is just going to accept it. If, if they don't do what they've committed to, which is that they're going to become more progressive and more tolerant. Talk to me about that, that looming deadline. Uh, U.S. troops largely expected to leave the country at the end of the month. So what do you fear September 1st will look like there? September 1st is a, a cracking down on the population because there will be no more eyes monitoring them. There will be no more accountability in terms of what the Taliban do. And the population know it. And that's why you see these overwhelming numbers at the airport. It's regrettable. This population does not deserve this. And what I am hoping is that with, what, uh, with whatever leverage the U.S. and the international community holds, it works with the regional actors who will have much more leverage than the U.S. at this point and works with them in order to find ways to hold the, the Taliban accountable and to create sta stabilization. Second, that it uses the, what it has in terms of its economic leverage, its diplomatic engagement, which is also a source of leverage, um, the this, this sanctions regime that the U.N. has, that all of these are used very, very strategically to protect the Afghan population and not just do what we've done for the last two years with the Taliban breaks agreement after agreement, and the U.S. and the international community turn a blind eye because the international community, including the U.S., wanted to leave. And it was much more convenient to turn a blind eye to what the Taliban was doing because of the, the desire to withdraw troops. Now that that's gone, um, my plea to the administration is hold the Taliban accountable, protect the population, give them voice, do not let the Taliban speak on their behalf, even as you engage the Taliban. Rina, you said that people are calling you, they're texting you, they're asking, what can we do to keep ourselves and our family safe? What, what answer can you give them? No, so right now what they're asking is, can you help me get out? Can anyone help me get out? Because that's what they see as essential to protecting themselves and their families. Right now, it's all about survival. And I tell them to lay low, that if they're unsafe in their house, to seek shelter to not turn the lights on if they're under scrutiny, to save the charge on their phone, like really survival tips. That's what I'm giving these people. The, the immediate survival tips to keep their families safe as they're under watch, um, which is something that I wish I had never had to say to anyone. Rina, that's heartbreaking. We're gonna continue to follow this story. We thank you so much for your time and for giving us this perspective. And we thank you for listening. We also wanna thank our production team, Melissa Mack, Darren Price, and Ben Berkowitz. I'm your host, Gilma Avalos, and we'll see you next time on The Debrief. <laughs>